Specialty Story, session number 84. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week. If you're a pre-med student listening to this, go check out all of the other podcasts that I offer at mededmedia.com. If you're in medical school, go check out our one of our newest podcasts, Board Rounds, which you can find, again, at mededmedia.com. Board Rounds will help you with step one and level one. This week, we have a great conversation with a cardiac electrophysiologist. We have a physician who's going to talk about his 17 years in the field, what he's seen, what he likes, what he doesn't like, and the path to becoming an electrophysiologist. My conversation with Dr. Edward Schloss begins with how he became interested in electrophysiology. Well, it kind of happened in stages. I came out of undergrad as an engineer and wasn't sure at all that I wanted to be a doctor and, and then kind of found that as I, as I got farther along. But as you're going through medical school, you know, we, we all have experienced the monotony of sitting in a room and just memorizing facts. And, and, it's, and it's quite a bit different than probably just about everybody's undergraduate. And so what happened was, I think it was second year of med school, we had an ECG class and the light kind of went on. It's like, we're finally actually doing problem solving it wasn't just rote memorization. You actually had to take a set of facts and integrate them and, and interpret them. And, and then there was some nuance in the answering. And that was just a breath of fresh air. So that kind of latched on to me at that point that this is kind of cool. And then you go through all your phases. I mean, I went through I went through my rheumatology phase. I went through my nephrology phase. I went through my primary care phase. There was actually even one night where I, I said, I know what I'm not going to be. I'm not going to be a cardiologist because I was watching this <laughs> poor interventional fellow holding pressure on a groin at like 9 p.m. when I was on call. And I'm like, I, I'm not going to be that guy. There's no <laughs> way. So so then sure enough, um, I start arriving at electrophysiology. There were a couple of things. One was just watching these guys talk. Now, this is in med school back in the early days, they were doing something called serial drug testing, which has long been been uh, taken away, but they would take people who had VTAC or cardiac arrest and they would put them in the lab and they would pace their heart and throw in skip beats, do an EP study to try to induce the arrhythmia. We still do that once in a while, but not nearly what we used to. And then they would start a medication, they'd bring them back and do it again. And they and literally like every couple of days, they'd put somebody in the lab and kind of kill them and bring them back to life <laughs> uh, and, uh, and tell us about it. I thought, well, this is crazy cool. You know, and, and it was all done for the right reasons. And eventually it usually led to a defibrillator. And, uh, you know, we long since have, have learned that the drugs don't work so well. But that kind of registered. That was just kind of cool from a, a, you know, who would do that kind of standpoint. So I kept my eye on it at that point. But then it wasn't till much later that I did a, um, I did a fellowship uh, or, or in, in my residency. I, I saw a, a test that, again, we still don't do called a signal average ECG and it was just this strange, crazy ECG, and I had to learn what this was. And that brought me to the people that do electrophysiology, and I got involved with them and kind of got some mentorship that way. So it was it was a marriage of, of it was basically an engineering field within medicine that that suited me well. 
What traits do you think lead to someone being a good cardiac electrophysiologist? You got to be analytic is probably key number one. You kind of have to be able to look at data objectively and analyze it. And there can be mountains of data and sorting through, you know, the good from the bad. You got to want to do that. In the lab, you have to be meticulous, very, very meticulous. The things that we do, especially in ablation world, which is, you know, kind of one facet of electrophysiology, going into the into the heart with catheters, moving them around to either freeze or burn away bad tissue. That requires just crazy amounts of meticulous work, uh, moving things uh, millimeter here, millimeter there. And it can take hours and hours to do that. So you have to be focused and meticulous for hours on your feet to be able to get through that. But what I'll also emphasize, and this I think is what distinguishes a good electrophysiologist who's a true doctor from a proceduralist, you got to be able to do patient care as well. And you need to have relationships with your patients. If you're not, if you're going into EP and you don't value that, then I just assume you pick another, another line of work. But we deal with people that are very vulnerable. They're intimidated. Many of them have been through something life-changing. They're facing uh, risk of cardiac arrest, or they've been through a cardiac arrest, or they're scared to death about their arrhythmias. And you're doing something that sounds very intimidating to most people. So you need to humanize it, gather their trust uh, before they ever hit the lab. And I, I think that's really critical. We don't meet people on the table. We, we meet them ahead of time. Mm. And then for many of these people, you follow them for many years. I, I have a lot of device patients in my practice, and these people have a hunk of metal in their body that I'm responsible for for the rest of their life. So they're kind of married to me uh, professionally, and we see them through thick and thin. What types of patients are you seeing in diseases and pathologies are you treating? So within electrophysiology, there's, uh, there's a pretty broad mix. There are young people that have palpitations anywhere. I don't see people who are pediatric age, but 18 on up. Palpitations, uh, fainting episodes are pretty common in young people. POTS or neurocardiogenic syncope within that population. We see some young people get a little bit older. You start seeing people with paroxysmal atrial fibrillation who might be healthy, uh, but have developed atrial fibrillation from a variety of, of, of different causes, even in healthy people. And then you get a little bit older and you start getting into the uh, heart disease population. Um, so folks that have suffered myocardial infarction and might uh, be candidates for primary prevention defibrillator. And then you get into the much older people, older people, well, I'll say much older, but you get into the heart failure population, gets you up a little bit older. And then my very favorites, honestly, in my, in my world is the is the really cute 90-year-olds. That's as good as it gets. Uh, so like a 90-year-old with, with heart block who's maybe had a fainting episode and you put a pacer in them and they're, they're good to go. And, uh, you know, if you're, if you're healthy enough to see an electrophysiologist over 90, that's, that's my kind of patient. I just absolutely love that stuff. <laughs> How many patients that come to you are, or come to an electrophysiologist are diagnosed with something and you're just treating them or how many are, do you have to actually do the, the research and, and lab and testing to, to actually diagnose them? It's, it'd be pretty rare for somebody to hit the door and be ready to go right away, at least from the point of decision-making and counseling. I'm, I'm spoiled by having very good referring physicians, mostly my own partners, 
So the diagnostic testing, when they hit the door, it's not unusual for them to be ready to go. So they've had, you know, let's say heart failure patient, they've had their echo, they've had their the medications titrated and, you know, this and that. But a lot of times they don't know what they need. Uh, and that's pretty common. In fact, generally, if they think they know what they need, much of the time they're wrong. And, and that's not because they're not good doctors. It's just our field is so highly specialized. So it's very common when people hit the door that I may have to craft their expectations a little differently. I've Over the years, I think I've gotten my partners and the folks that refer to me uh, well enough trained that they know enough to refer, but they don't box me in by telling me what to do. And I think any good uh, receiving referral, you know, doctor receives referrals really appreciates that. Describe a typical day. So I uh, typically arrive at the hospital maybe a little before seven. Um, A lot of that depends upon how much is going on in the hospital. And then I run around and I see my post-ops. I'm very, uh, not everybody does that, but I think it's really, really important to see people the day after their procedure personally to kind of establish, you know, cement the relationship let them know that you're looking after them. And then I generally make it down to either the lab or the office by eight. My days are generally either all day lab or all day office. So on an office day, I'll, I'll, um, I'll see patients from maybe eight, eight to 8.30 or so I'm prepping charts. And then from maybe 8.39 until about five or so, it's pretty much continuous patients and you kind of come up for air during lunch. Sometimes you get a more time than other, but grab a little something to eat and then dive right back in. And that can be, you know, some days it's light, some days it's busy. Usually you're kind of going from one to another. It's pretty, it's pretty hectic. On a lab day, uh, real variable. Uh, we do these procedures that sometimes take a short amount of time, sometimes take several hours. It's hard to predict sometimes which takes which number of hours. And I'll typically be done, unless there's some uh, unusual circumstances or emergency add-ons, I'll typically be done on those days around six as well. Now, you chose or are currently in a community setting. What was the decision algorithm for you to go out into the community versus being in an academic setting? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and I have a, an answer that works for me, and, and it's something that maybe your your listeners should think about. So, I was one of these like really aggressive fellows who felt ownership over uh, his patients. And, you know, I, I, by the time I got done, I was a PGY-8. I mean, it takes a long time to become an electrophysiologist. So you feel kind of ready for it. So you really want to do the things yourself. So I hated it when my attendings would lean over my shoulder and take control of the catheters or, or the leads, uh, you know, try to try to do access and things like that. So you kind of you try really hard, obviously, to get good patient care, but you kind of want them out of the picture. Well, I realized once I got out of practice that I wasn't going to change. <laughs> and so <laughs> if um, if I went into an academic practice and had to teach fellows and give them control, then then I would have a tough time with that and I would feel somewhat hypocritical. So that was one reason. And another reason was that I didn't, I found research much later in my career in the early going in academia there was a fair amount of pressure to write abstracts and and write papers uh, and 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 I just had a hard time getting on that bandwagon and much of it just didn't seem terribly valuable um you know kind of fellow level research that you could put together so I kind of tried to to skirt away from that as much as I could 
and I wasn't likely going to be a good junior academician if I didn't have a, a thirst for research. I enjoyed teaching, but you know, I, I wasn't sure I was I was going to be patient about it. You know, as luck would have it, as time went on, I've I've had opportunities to teach. Not as many doctors as as industry and and staff and and such. And I absolutely love that if they're committed. And actually, done a ton of research too in the community because of of our involvement in, in a lot of multi-center trials. We have a pretty solid research center here as well, even though we're not uh, affiliated with a medical school. Now, it sounds like as a cardiac electrophysiologist, the majority of your patients that you're seeing, you're actually doing some sort of procedure on. Is there some sort of breakdown, like 80% you're doing procedures on and the rest you you pass, or what does that look like? Yeah, let's think about that. So if somebody hits the door as a new patient evaluation, will I do a procedure on them? And the answer to that is probably about 75 yes, 25 no. So let's talk about the no people first. So I see a lot of people that come to me for benign palpitations. And we sometimes all we need to do is just put an event monitor on them and and say that they're PVCs and determine that they're benign and reassure. So that's not going to lead to a procedure. Other folks come to me, you know, a lot of those folks will land in a general cardiologist's office. So that's probably why we don't see all of those folks. One of the things I think my partners have learned along the way is, you know, we're all real busy. You try to focus the patient streams to where you offer the most value. And most of EP that is highly technical and specialized involves at least either doing a procedure or managing uh, what occurs after the procedure. So, Maybe I'm not the one who puts the pacer defibrillator in. Maybe they come to me from another practice, so I don't do a procedure on them, but somebody did. So, so I guess 75-25 probably. What does call look like for you? So that evolved over the course of my career, and, and this is going to be very local and variable. So most electrophysiologists are, that I'm experienced with and talked with would like to be purely electrophysiology on call. And we got to that point, but it took a long time. I've now got four partners, so I take call every fifth night and every fifth weekend. And um, so what I do now on call, let's talk about what I used to do. What I used to do on call was general cardiology call, which was you know, what any general cardiologist deals with, uh, uh, chest pain, uh, low blood pressure, uh, people in the emergency room with shortness of breath. Not the interventions, those would go to somebody else, but just about anything a cardiologist would be called for, which turns out a lot of that is arrhythmias. Mm. And then as we got bigger and built uh, an electrophysiology-specific call, call changed quite a bit. And now the the calls are less frequent. And, uh, you know, arrhythmias, they call us about complex arrhythmias. They call us if a defibrillator starts shocking somebody. They'll call us if somebody needs a a pacemaker right away, although we're not always even the ones to put it in. Uh, sometimes our interventional colleagues put those in, but we, we still go in to do temporary pacers. So it got to be a less intense call, but it's sort of a high acuity call and a very, uh, in many cases, a very knowledge-based uh, call, meaning uh, difficult, uh, complex calls. Do you feel like you have enough time for life outside of the hospital? Yeah, I can't. I can't complain. I will anyway. I mean, I would love, you know, I go through these periodic uh, retirement fantasies, not because I don't love my job, but because I absolutely just love my home life. I've got a phenomenal family and I uh, love my wife and, a, a, you know, and a, a great place to live and all. So I really do enjoy being away from the hospital. But 
you know, the fact of the matter is you work hard and, and you, you have to be here when you're here, you got to be here. So you've got to, you've got to actually devote yourself to that. So with the time constraints that I described, which are usually about right, I typically, you know, roll into the hospital around seven, roll home around six, that still leaves a decent night most nights. And then the weekends, you know, are, are variable. I don't count on being available for anything on the weekends. We just kind of shut it all down. But if I'm pleasantly surprised, uh, you know, I shouldn't even say surprised, I'm pleasantly able to stay at home. Uh, we can we can certainly have a nice time at home. Yeah. What does the training path look like to become a cardiac electrophysiologist? So um, you start out as a uh, internal medicine fellow or internal medicine residency. So you apply out of now. This is I don't think this has changed, but if, if anybody knows differently, I'll stand corrected. Because uh, this is 20 years ago, and I don't keep close track. But anyway, you come out of uh, of, of medical school and apply to an internal medicine residency, and that's going to be three years. And along the way, you decide, I want to go into cardiology, apply for and get a cardiology fellowship. So that's now another three years of general cardiology. Then you subspecialize uh, and choose electrophysiology. And depending on what program you're in, that might be combined into the general cardiology program or it might be a separate fellowship. For me, it was a separate fellowship and it added two additional years. So if you count it all up, that's uh, eight years of postgraduate training before you, you finally get a, get a real job. Yeah. It's, it's still similar to this day. Pretty sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a long time. yeah. And do you know how competitive it is to match into cardiac EP? I don't know firsthand. I know within cardiology still, I think the interventional folks kind of are the most popular, if you will, and mm -hmm. the one that gets the most attention. I suspect interventional cardiology fellowships are still more competitive than EP, but there aren't a ton of EP spots. So, you know, it kind of depends, I suppose, on when you get out and what the, what the applicant pool is. And I think just getting into cardiology is tough. Getting into a subspecialty within cardiology is also going to be tough. Yeah. For Somebody who is a cardiac electrophysiologist, are there any other opportunities to further subspecialize their their care of patients? So you, um, EP is a very narrow field, but there's a within that narrow field, there's a fairly significant breadth of knowledge. So it kind of cuts down in the middle between two basic worlds, at least within procedural, and those are device implantation. This is one of the things I thought was pretty cool when I was, you know, going through an internal medicine residency. They're like, well, heck, I actually can do some surgery. It's like uh, I can actually make an incision, stitch it up, and go into the operating room and all of that, which was somewhat unique within internal medicine subspecialties. And so, device implantation, like putting in pacemakers, putting in defibrillators, uh, removing those devices, so lead extraction, which gets to be pretty hairy, uh, management of infected devices, which requires a fair amount of surgery. And then all the data management, which is very subspecialized and, and pretty intense of all of those devices. That's one world. And then the other world within electrophysiology is sublation. So invasive management of arrhythmias. And uh, so that's uh, putting catheters up into the heart and either freezing or burning the portion of the heart where the arrhythmia arises. When I got out of training, that was mostly treating things like uh, supraventricular tachycardias. Uh, so Wolf Parkinson White syndrome, AV nodal reentry, tachycardia. And then early in my training became apparent that we could ablate atrial fibrillation. And 
that has now subsumed pretty much the ablation world. That's most of the ablations that are done nowadays. But uh, uh, it took a long, long time to get to the point where that procedure got worked out. The amount of research and, and, and attempts and tries and things before the procedure became to refine what it is right now, I think that's probably the longest sort of procedural research type learning curve I've seen within my field. For the osteopathic student listening to this, do you see a lot of DOs out in the cardiac electrophysiology world? Uh, that's a good question. I saw them when I was in training. I don't think we have any here locally. I will say the DOs I worked with, and I can remember some of them, I won't name them by name right now, were some of the best docs that I, I had in practice in, in my fellowship. And I had a, I don't know, maybe just because of good encounters, I personally didn't feel any bias at all one way or another with DO versus MD. I hope it's still as open as it was when I was there, but it, it didn't, you know, I didn't ask them, was it tough to get the fellowship? I will mm -hmm. say once they got in though, they were, they were rocking and rolling like just like everybody else. Good. What do you wish you knew the primary care providers, the internists, the, the family practice docs out there knew about cardiac electrophysiology, what you're doing day in and day out to hopefully help their patients and help you in the future? Well, we've got great primary care physicians. I'm blessed with a, a very uh, healthy referral environment, but there are things that I suppose that I could I could teach them if they would take the time to sit and, and listen. One, I think, is when to refer. This is probably true of a lot of subspecialties. There are people who they're kind of out there. You know, the market research will you know the, you'll hear that from industry. They're kind of out there, but they haven't been referred. And some of our patients are held on to too long before anything, before we can do something good for them, or maybe just missed opportunities. So if they've got somebody who, say, has heart failure and they haven't seen an electrophysiologist or hasn't seen a heart failure specialist, general cardiologist, maybe they'd want to refer those folks out. Atrial fibrillation, I think, is a classic example uh, where the evolution of how it's being treated has, has changed quite a bit. And not every primary care physician may be aware that we've got great treatments for atrial fibrillation now, but we need to get to people earlier rather than later. Another thing, I suppose, is the importance of just very basic testing. This maybe applies more to my general cardiology colleagues than the primary care docs, but simple things like just getting EKGs in people that are symptomatic. It surprises me how it's not unusual for, for me to see somebody that's had an echo, an MRI, a cardiac cath but it's been six months since their last 12 lead ECG. And then we'll, we'll find something that, that changes the whole game just because the EKG wasn't checked. What other specialties do you work the closest with? EPs kind of, you know, we're, we're kind of lone wolves to some extent, you know, we're sort of figuratively and, and, and literally in the basement of our hospital patients kind of come to us and we're, we're rarely referring out. And we take them down to the basement and do our kind of little voodoo on them. Uh, and then hopefully they come out better than when they came in. That said, we do have healthy working relationships, very, very healthy with our general cardiologists. And especially in my world, which is mostly devices, with our heart failure specialists. So interacting with other doctors for me is probably 90% other cardiologists. And I absolutely need them. They are, are critical I do work with primary care physicians, uh, although I think the pathway to referral in my world is probably for the, you know, for most primary care physicians and most patients, 
it's probably best to put them into the cardiology system. And then from within the cardiology system, they can then be referred again to an EP. Now there's exceptions to that for the right patient and a well-informed PCP. But in many cases, you'll save them uh, some time if you go straight to the general cardiologist first. And then I do, you know, for infected devices, I work with ID and the critical care doctors and such. Are there any special opportunities outside of clinical medicine for EP ducts? Uh, so outside of clinical medicine, um, it's probably industry is the one that's worth talking about the most. And um, I think EP's got maybe not a completely unique relationship with industry, but probably one of the more tightly partnership industry relations that we have in in cardiology or in, in, in medicine that I'm aware of. We have, you know, we work with very complex equipment, uh, very technically uh, complicated equipment, which is not unusual in medicine, but maybe what is a little unusual is once they leave the hospital, they still have that equipment inside their body and that has to be maintained uh, and, and serviced and troubleshot. And so pacers and defibrillators, biventricular uh, heart failure devices are super complex. There's lots of things that can go wrong. There's lots of nuance in how we program those devices. And so industry is absolutely critical for us to be able to manage those appropriately because uh, there really aren't any docs that I know of that can do that independently without a little bit of help. So within uh, our world, if you want to be one of those people, uh, there are opportunities to work in industry. Now, what you would do at the MD level, I suppose, is consult. And then there are some people that, that go and work uh, full time with industry and for our world, it's probably going to be mainly uh, companies that impl- that manufacture implantable devices or or, or catheters that, that do ablation. So you see, you know, there's a few people that I've known as doctors that are now full-time industry people. And uh, for most of those folks, we look at that as a badge of respect. They've become, you know, they've moved the way they want to move. I don't know that I could ever do that. There's a lot of reasons why. <laughs> you I don't, don't call it going it. to the dark side? Oh, well, I wouldn't even call it the dark side. I mean, that's, I actually, I I really mean it when I say it's a partnership and I know industry gets beat up a lot in, in these circles, Um, but done right. I think industry MD partnerships are, are very, very healthy Uh, done wrong. Obviously it is the dark side. Yeah. What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into EP? The, um, you know, I kind of, you know, learned along the way about all the new, all the, you know, the, the little stuff, uh, the electrograms and, and, and EKG interpretation and what's in the books and stuff. And the, the thing that, it, that dawned on me as I was getting farther out in practice is just how overwhelming the amount of information you have to deal with can become and how absolutely critical that you need to build a team uh, around you and you need to reward and support that team. We have, over the time that I've working with us, kind of brought people into the fold, nurses, techs, good industry people. Some of them were actually, were our nurses and techs and then moved over to industry. And if you value them and support them, they will return back to you what you need to be able to take care of your patients. And it just would be literally, at least in my world, literally impossible to do this without this healthy group of supportive people. And if I don't reward them and I don't value what they do and show them respect, I don't know why they would ever want to work for me. So the amount of time it takes, you have to learn, you got to train these people and you got to keep them. Cause if the, if the 
couple of the wrong people, you know, right people leave at the at the same time, you're going to be up the creek, and uh, you don't want to be that doc. So take care of your of your people. What do you like the most about being a cardiac EP? So it started out as being, you know, procedural stuff, being in the lab and and you know watching accessory pathways go away, watching a tough lead go in, and and getting uh, getting the, the the immediate buzz of a successful procedure. And I'd still part of me. I still love that. But what happened over the years that I began to practice medicine is I started to really appreciate the nuance of patient care. And that's, you know, I kind of came, I came out of college as an engineer and I didn't realize how much I would like patient relationships. And, uh, you know, they t- a lot of people told me that, oh, you're eventually going to like office. And I'm like, oh, I hate office. I can't take this. And so, but after a while, it's like, well, this opens up to you. And you start seeing the same patient back you know, and their family every year and you start learning about them and their family, you see them grow older, evolve. And, and, uh, it's just incredibly satisfying to watch all that stuff happen. And it it doesn't happen right away. So nobody likes that stuff right away. But after you've been in practice for a little while, uh, that really opens up and, and gets exciting. And then the other stuff that happens for me is, is troubleshooting and, and complex management of devices. It's a, 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 a week doesn't go by, barely a day doesn't go by. I don't see something that I've never seen before. And it just blows me away just how much nuance and, and difference there is in what we do. It is a very, very big world that is somewhat impenetrable early on. I know a lot of people when they first look at EP, it was like, you got to be kidding. I'm not going to want to do this. But once you get in a little bit deeper, this thing just opens up and does so many interesting things. And I think electrophysiologists are very, very passionate and they love what they do. And almost nobody knows what the hell it is that we do, but we love it. And that just keeps getting bigger and bigger as you get more and more kind of presence and and understanding this world just opens up to you. What do you like the least? Uh, So it's probably the same answer for everybody you interview, but I don't like pleasing our masters that don't really have our best interests in mind. So I guess what I would say to that, it's, it kind of breaks down to, I don't like checking boxes. I don't like doing unnecessary documentation. I don't like following uh, the rules of someone who doesn't literally understand why they wrote those rules. Uh, these kind of faceless uh, bureaucrats, I guess, for lack of a better term, that we all need to serve as uh, clinicians in the U.S. It's very, very challenging to do the things that are necessary to do the job that have absolutely nothing to do with the delivery of healthcare. Yeah. Uh, so, regulatory requirements and, and fighting for things for your patients from people that are not invested or informed or expert—it's very challenging. <laughs> they are invested just in the wrong things. <laughs> yeah, they're not. Uh, they're not on our team. That's for sure. Yeah. Do you see any major changes coming to the field of of cardiac EP, uh, especially for somebody that's been in it for twenty years now, um, yeah. that a, a student should be concerned about or be thinking about? Yeah. So, yeah, from the point of view of a student getting in, uh, dive in. This is not going anywhere. It is. It's just going to get uh, uh, more and more interesting and more and more exciting. And our patient population is not going anywhere. So if we break it down again into the kind of the two broad technologies, 
about uh, let's do devices first. So what's happening with devices, uh, pacers and defibrillators, is we're getting away from our traditional way of delivering energy to the heart, which is through leads that pass through the vasculature and the veins uh, down into the heart and, you know, and wedge or screw into parts of the heart. We now have uh, very early stages of fully self-contained pacemakers that go inside the heart entirely, the size essentially of a big pill, and everything's right there. So you can put that up through the a big sheath in the vein and then and then inject essentially inject that right into the right ventricular cavity and then boom you got a, a single chamber pacer. So that's just in its infancy right now. But this whole leadless technology of where we're going with devices is getting bigger. And it won't completely replace the traditional leads. I, I don't think anybody's that optimistic uh, or or you know realistically it's just couldn't happen. But that's where we're heading with that. And that's just very cool. And it's interesting and they're they're you know they're kind of fun to put in. On the ablation side, you know, it all boils down to an ablation is trying to figure out where the arrhythmias are arising in the heart and then how to isolate or ablate or uh, eliminate the tissue that's causing that to arise. And so most of those techniques are catheter-based and you either freeze or burn. You do a lot of high sophisticated uh, mapping to try to figure out where to go. But I tell you what's happening now, and this is the most amazing thing I think that's happening in EP right now, out of uh, St. Louis, uh, WashU, uh, there is a group that has partnered with radiation oncology, of all things, to external beam radiate the heart and eliminate arrhythmias that way. And that's just hit the New England Journal in the last year, and the investigators are are very, uh, you know, appropriately cautious, but most of us that have heard about this are just beyond the moon excited. How is this going to happen? It will absolutely revolutionize how we ablate uh, arrhythmias and it'll start with, you know, the, with, with one thing, but I think it could progress into others. So we'll see, it's too early to say where radiation, external beam radiation is going in EP, but I, I think it's just absolutely fascinating. It's like who, who would have thought of that? It's one of those things. It's like, why didn't I think of that? My God, that, you just love that there's innovators out there that, that'll go down that crazy pathway and show that it works. Are you pro Apple Watch with the EKG feature? Uh, that's a that's a <laughs> very long answer. We could do another <laughs> podcast on that if you would like. I am absolutely pro informing patients and giving them access to data, but it is a challenge to do that correctly. Yeah. And the problem that you run into with Apple Watch and other people have said this much more eloquently than I'll be able to stay right now, but you're casting an enormously wide net on a very low risk population. Yep. And no matter how good the technology is going to be, you're going to see a lot of false positives and those false positives are going to lead down rabbit holes and additional testing and a lot of consternation and fear on the part of patients and patients' families and a lot of resources that'll get used up in the process. And then even in the true positives, you're going to see a lot of detected asymptomatic atrial fibrillation. And frankly, we have very limited information about what to do about that. We know a little something about asymptomatic atrial fibrillation because we see it in devices. And so people walk around, uh, you know, just like you'd walk around with a watch on most of the day. We've got people walking around with pacers in their in their heart who may not have a diagnosis of atrial fib, but the device will pick it up 
And there's still enormous controversy about what to do with that population that we've been aware of and managing for almost my entire career. So now we're going to have this whole new set of people that will have uh, asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic atrial fibrillation picked up with their watch. And then what do we do with them? Do we anticoagulate them? How long are the episodes? Is it appropriate to do uh, drugs or ablation to try to eliminate it? Is it something that just is going to come and go because the patient has the flu? Mm. Uh, It's very uncertain right now. And we're going to hustle as a discipline to figure out how to manage these folks. Right now, there really isn't any consensus, but they're going to start hitting our office very soon if they haven't already. Yeah. Very interesting. Oh, I have one and it's fun to play with and see where I'm at. I do too. (laughs) Yeah. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a cardiac EP? Uh, yeah, that's a, a quick, easy answer is, is yes. Uh, there isn't any field that I could identify within. Let's talk about medicine, at least. That's pretty easy. There's nothing in medicine that I could even imagine I would want to do more than electrophysiology. It, it is, it's got all the techie stuff that, that appeals to me. It's got uh, troubleshooting engineering, which I find fascinating. It's got relationships you get to do surgery, even though you're not a surgeon. It's like, who would have thunk it? And, and you get these, these crazy good outcomes. So you get to see people, you know, rise up, especially like our, our you know, our ablation patients or our, our resynchronization patients, heart failure patients. You can, you can really turn people around. It's incredibly gratifying. So I, um, I would not do anything different, you know, outside of medicine, who knows? I yeah. haven't. <laughs> you could be a podcaster. <laughs> I could be a podcaster. I could probably do that. Yeah. <laughs> Any last words of wisdom for the the resident listening to this or the med student or pre-med student listening to this thinking about cardiac EP now? Yeah. So if you're if you're at that level and you get the bug kind of like I did, you see something, you know, somebody shows you an electrogram or a crazy EKG, or you see him coming out of the room with a device, and you're like, wow, that looks cool. Don't be intimidated. A couple of things. One, seek out the right people because you're not going to figure this out on your own. And I suspect it's going to be tough to get a fellowship unless you have some contacts. So find somebody like me who will be just thrilled that you found this interesting because most people don't, most people are, are kind of sh- scared away or, or just not interested. So somebody young and eager uh, gets interested, uh, you know, that'll get our attention. I'm not in a teaching institution, but, but I, I'm sure that's what happens. So go ahead and, and latch on to those folks, but don't be intimidated because the stuff's going to seem hopelessly, ridiculously complicated and boring, absolutely boring. You're going to go sit in your first ablation as an observer and you'll be like, my God, when can I get out of here? It's going on for hours and hours and it's like nothing's happening and I don't understand what the heck it is they're talking about. Just hang in there because after you've done that for a little while, if you get the proper teaching, it's all going to open up and it's going to be just become incredibly fascinating. And then it'll be part of the club. So, uh, yeah, I absolutely hope you interested medical students who may or may not be listening right now will please seek this out and get involved because if you've got a passion for it at that stage, then you're going to become a great electrophysiologist later. All right. There you have it again, Dr. Edward Schloss, cardiac electrophysiologist talking about his career, what got him there, what he's seen, what he likes, what he doesn't like, and his advice for you. Hopefully this has been a helpful podcast episode for you. I would love your thoughts by leaving a review and a rating 
in Apple Podcasts or iTunes as it is known on the desktop. If you are using another app and you can leave a rating and review, go ahead and do that in whatever app you are using. Next week, we have a great guest, Dr. Dave Winchester, an academic cardiologist talking about his specialty. Have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. 